Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Broback. And I'm Kemper Donovan. And this week, we are very excited to talk about the classic, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. Agatha Christie masterpiece. I know, I know. So everybody, (laughs) you know, get hype. This was first published, like all of our Christie's thus far, as a serialization, this time in the London Evening News from July to September of 1925. It was called Who Killed Ackroyd? And it was published in book form a year later in 1926, not by the Bodley Head, but by a brand new publisher, William Collins and Sons, which would go on to become HarperCollins, who would be the publisher for all of the rest of Christie's novels and, in fact, to this day, are still the publisher in both the UK and the US for her estate. So just to bring us up to speed on uh, the publishing history of Christie's novels, The Bodley Head published The Mysterious Affair of Styles, her first novel, and she had to deal with them off of that novel for five more novels. Um, Over time, however, she grew tired of The Bodley Head. They disagreed on things like covers, and she grew to feel that the advances in royalties she was getting on those books could have been a lot better. Uh, especially as her book started to do better. So she was eager to run out the contract, and run it out she did with The Secret Adversary, The Murder on the Links, The Man in the Brown Suit, and then there was a quote-unquote long short story that she stretched out into a novel, (laughs) and that novel was rejected as she expected it would be. And then the final novel she published was The the Secret of Chimneys with the bodily head. As we noted, it felt like a little bit of a rush job, and I think the history bears that out because she was probably pretty eager to be done with that publisher. And as she herself wrote, after that, freedom. Freedom and the advice of Hughes Massey, who was her her new book agent. And from then onwards, I should have first-class advice as to what to do and, even more important, what not to do. So Murder of Roger Ackroyd is the first book that she came out with after her old publishing contract was over, and it represents a bit of a fresh start. Although, to some extent, we could say that her fresh start is essentially a better deal and a recreation of her original start with the bodily head, mm-hmm. because this, uh, like The Mysterious Affair at Styles, is a Poirot novel. It's the third, and like Mysterious Affair at Styles and like Murder on the Links, it has a first-person narrator, except in this case, it is not our beloved Captain Hastings. He has gone to Argentina with his beautiful and beloved wife, the Cinderella from Murder Cinderella. on the Cinderella. Yep. And uh, it still really bothers me that her that we have to call her Cinderella. But <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm sure Captain Hastings is in his, you know, South American love nest and doesn't really care what you think about it. Aro has gone off into retirement. So the new narrator of this book is a doctor. Dr. James Shepard, and we could argue that that makes the model hue even more closely to Holmes and Watson than it did in Styles, since, of course, John Watson was also a medical doctor, and Dr. Shepard even references Holmes outright within the book. He says, I played Watson to his Sherlock, referring to Poirot, and it's also interesting, I think, to look at the original dust jacket for the murder of Roger Ackroyd when it was published in 1926, which says, Monsieur Poirot, the hero of the mysterious affair at Styles and other brilliant pieces of detective deduction comes out of his temporary retirement like a giant refreshed to undertake the investigation of a peculiarly brutal and mysterious murder. Geniuses like Sherlock Holmes often find a use for faithful medium 
mediocrity. It's like Dr. Nice. Watson. And by a coincidence, it is the local doctor who follows Poirot around and himself tells the story. Furthermore, as seldom happens in these cases, he is instrumental in giving Poirot one of the most valuable clues to the mystery. And oh, is this a valuable clue because the murder of Roger Ackroyd is so much more than Holmes fan fiction. It is because, and let's get this out of the way immediately, spoiler alert, although if you're listening to this podcast, presumably (laughs) you should be expecting a spoiler, but uh, (laughs) yeah, the narrator is in fact the murderer. Dun, dun, dun. I guess it was a revolutionary twist. People at the time either were incredibly irritated by it or thought it was incredibly clever. I mean, yeah, that is the big twist that makes this novel a classic. Other than the twist, though, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd is an extremely conventional Agatha Christie mystery puzzle, and it is strikingly similar to the model that she established in the Mysterious Affair styles, down to an illustrated layout of the rooms at the big country estate where the murder takes place, a drawing of the specific room where the murder happened, that a big Poirot cast of potential suspects. essentially in retirement in both of them? Yeah, I mean, Poirot, he's, he's more retired now, but there's a bigger deal made out of it, but he's retired in both. You know, we have our big cast of suspects that we've, we've grown used to in these puzzles, a gathering of the suspects toward the end of the novel. Through and a closed yeah, room murder. Yep, a closed room murder. So... We want to get quickly through the more conventional mystery puzzle and then on to the more interesting part of this novel and what makes it so interesting and classic, which again is the twist. So we're going to do a quick summary of how that mystery puzzle works and plays out. So much like in The Mysterious Affair Styles, this novel also takes place in the English countryside. The village here is called King's Abbot, and the action is centered on a very large estate called Fernley Park. When the story opens, we are told by our narrator, Dr. Shepard, that a widow named Mrs. Fares has just died from apparently an overdose of Varanol, which is a sleeping draught. And some, including Dr. Shepard's spinster sister, Caroline, thinks that uh, she committed suicide as an act of remorse for having poisoned her own possibly abusive husband a year earlier. But there's actually nothing to particularly back this up. Other than the fact that Caroline's just a rampant gossip. So later that day, Dr. Shepard is invited to Friendly Park, which is the estate of the immensely wealthy Roger Ackroyd. And Ackroyd himself is rumored to have been in love with Mrs. Ferris and on the brink of marrying her. And later that night after dinner, Ackroyd pulls Dr. Shepard into his office and tells him that he was, in fact, engaged to Mrs. Ferris and that Mrs. Ferris had admitted to him that she had, in fact, poisoned her late husband. Then, while these two are talking, Roger Ackroyd actually receives a letter from the dead woman. It was in the post. She clearly just posted it right before she killed herself because the note is essentially a suicide note telling uh, Roger Ackroyd that she was being blackmailed. But we don't get to know who the blackmailer was. Presumably, this is someone who also knew that she had killed her husband because Ackroyd refuses to read the rest of the letter in Shepard's presence. And then later that night, we learn from Dr. Shepard that Ackroyd is found dead in his office, stabbed in the neck, the murder weapon being a dagger that normally resides in a silver display case in the drawing room at Friendly Park. And, oh, do we have many suspects? Many, many suspects. <laughs> There's Ack- many, many, many. <laughs> Ackroyd's sister-in-law, uh, Mrs. Cecil Ackroyd, her beautiful young daughter, Flora Ackroyd, the 
devastatingly handsome and so tan he's sunburned Ralph Patton. Another handsome tanned man. Indeed, although this one is weak-willed, who is Ackroyd's stepson and heir to Ackroyd's industrial fortune. That's Ralph, right? Ralph 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 Patton. Patton. There's Ackroyd's secretary, George Raymond. There is his housekeeper, the severe Miss Russell. Um, who was at various points rumored to, you know, possibly have piqued uh, Ackroyd's interest as a potential wife, right? The shifty-seeming butler, Parker. A mysterious parlor maid named Ursula Bourne. The surly game hunter, Major Blunt, who is staying at the house. And a mysterious stranger with an American accent and possibly a drug habit who visits the house conveniently on the night of the murder. And I suppose our narrator. That's right. So not certainly a lot of suspects. And also, as in Styles, we have a bewildering number of clues thrown at us. And again, just as in Styles, the reason ends up being that there are multiple side plots of intrigue in addition to the main murder mystery. In Styles, we pretty much only had two. Here we have about five. Just quickly running down them. Before Roger Ackroyd died, his sister-in-law and niece were very much at his mercy for money and at wit's end to make ends meet. Miss Russell, the severe housekeeper, in fact gave birth to an illegitimate son in her younger days, and that son turns out to be the American-sounding stranger with the drug habit. Ralph Patton, the dashing, handsome stepson, has actually gone and married the mysterious parlor maid Ursula Bourne, despite having been publicly engaged to Flora Ackroyd. Also, despite this public engagement, Flora Ackroyd herself turns out to be in love with Major Blunt, and this feeling is very much mutual. And then the shifty butler Parker is indeed unscrupulous with a very checkered past and has been looking, albeit unsuccessfully, for an opportunity to be bad once again. So we have all kinds of side plots that account for all kinds of clues and much confusion. And they include a stiff white piece of cambric and a bit of quill straw found in a summer house, a ring found in a pond on the gardens of Fernley Park, Miss Russell being out of breath for no seeming reason, Parker lurking about here, there, and everywhere, and Ursula Bourne being dismissed from her position by the murder victim for apparently no cause, and Flora Ackroyd lying about having talked to her uncle when it turns out he was kind of already dead, so probably wasn't talking to her. (laughs) So the main plot of Who Killed Roger Ackroyd is mainly solved by virtue of a throwaway reference early on in the novel to a dictaphone. But at this point, it's it's the twist that's unique to the story, the narrator being the murderer, that really comes into play to explicate how Poirot does indeed figure out who killed Roger Ackroyd and how the reader comes to figure it out. So let's consider this story summarized. Uh, all of the, that mess of side plots and clues is swirling around, and by the time the reader gets to the end, they've, been, they've all been resolved and taken care of. But that's not really the interesting part of the story. Let's move on to the good stuff, which is the delicious narrator as murderer twist. Right. We don't really get, we don't not get the information that Poirot has, but we, because we're following our narrator and not exactly Poirot, and because it's not such a great account as perhaps Captain Hastings could get, you know, as sticking to the facts, we actually don't sort of see some of the steps that Poirot takes to investigate some of the clues. 
So, you know, Uh, absolutely. But I would argue that that's actually a strength of the the novel, because I think that one of the things that we kept on coming up against, especially in the Poirot short stories that we've talked about when comparing them to the televised adaptations, Mm -hmm. is how limited it is to have to tell the story from Hastings's first person perspective. And what, so she's kind of leaning into the inherent weakness of a first person telling here, you know, in that we have, there are, you know, Poirot is able to engage in all sorts. He's testing out whether or not Dr. Shepard is guilty, essentially off screen or off page. And it's, it's totally legit, but it's not, I, you know, it's technically not cheating. It could be a little annoying to a reader who find once they figure out the twist, but it's a neat. No, it is, but I mean, so talking about the twist, though, I do think that you have to look at this differently than all of the other Christie books, because while it's not technically in violation of any of these sort of puzzle mystery rules, it's not playing on the same game board, right? So if you're a reader, and it's actually probably why some readers were irritated by it when the book came out, because you're really not, you're not on the same sort of page as you would have been if you were familiar with her other books at some level or with the short stories. And she's using that to her right. benefit. No, she's totally using, using it to her benefit. I think that, I think what she would argue and what, what she actually did in fact argue is that she's creating a distinction in that she never at any point fabricates she never at any point has dr shepherd as narrator Why? giving out misinformation Correct. to the reader he never well in that an omission can be technically termed a lie he does lie because he's omitting all the time but he never fabricates he never he never gives information that actually turns out to be false. He merely omits information. And for her, that was playing fair and sort of playing by these informal rules. And I, I, you know, and I give her credit for that. I mean, you could argue that it still is cheating. And she actually wrote in her her autobiography that anyway, it was going to be difficult to do it in such a way that it would not be cheating. Of course, a lot of people say that the murder of Roger Ackroyd is cheating, but if they read carefully, they will see that they are wrong. Such little lapses of time as there have to be are nicely concealed in an ambiguous sentence. And Dr. Shepard, in writing it down, took great pleasure himself in writing nothing but the truth, though not the whole truth. So the story, the novel, with this twist would be a lot less impressive if he were just making stuff up. No, of all course. The time. Of course. Um, and I mean, it- the, sleight of, the sleight of hand. I mean, Christie is a lot of, often people use the analogy of sleight of hand when they're talking about the tricks that Christie employs to entertain her readers. Mm-hmm. And this certainly falls into that family, even though, yes, it's of a slightly well, different and, character. You know, incidentally, I suppose, if you're going to talk about seasoned Christie readers at this point, this is not the first Christie novel that uses the twist of the narrator being the criminal. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Because so the man in the brown suit. The man series, in the brown suit, yeah. right? I find it really it really interesting that, like, when people, there's this kind of, like, apocryphal telling of how Christy came up with the idea, and it's actually because she's, she's the one who said this. She basically credits two different men. She credits her brother-in-law, James, which was her sister Madge's husband, who apparently said, I would like to see a Watson who turned out to be the criminal. So in that case, she very literally created a Watson and made him out to be the criminal. Um, She also claims, even more interestingly, that Lord Mountbatten, (laughs) which is the same Lord Mountbatten who actually ended up being assassinated quite infamously by the IRA in 1979 and currently being played by Greg Wise on Netflix's The Crown, um, that he gave her the idea. 
idea because he actually wrote into a newspaper that had published one of her short stories with this, we won't, we don't have to go into it, but with a really sort of crazy idea for a rather violent murder mystery in which the first person narrator would also be the murderer. And he even followed up on that something like four decades later after having watched The Mousetrap to say, hey, do you remember when I wrote you that letter and gave you the idea for the murder of Roger Ackroyd? And she wrote him back and said, oh yeah, no, totally, you did. Did I ever acknowledge that? And he said, yeah, you did. We're good. She's like, okay, cool. We're good. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think you could make the argument that like she thought it up because she did it already, sort of, in The Man in the Brown Suit a couple of years earlier. I I think that's really interesting. Right. All of these cases, it's, it's weird with the Chronicles of Poirot as chronicled by Hastings because they do seem like they're being written down for posterity much like Watson is but it's unclear where or for what reason whereas both in The Man in the Brown Suit and in The Murder of Roger Ackroyd the narrator come criminal is in fact writing in the personal diary. Yeah absolutely it's much clearer although I will note that in this book Dr. Shepard makes reference to having read some right. of the apparently published tales. So apparently Doc, apparently, Captain Hastings is a published author in this world okay. and has published tales of Poirot in the same way that Watson did, which is just, it's so weird to me because it's its just very inconsistently and kind of weakly no, supported, it's men- but it is it's there. mentioned in a few of the short stories in passing, uh-huh. but like yeah. not directly. It's not clear who's published the... But who's publishing them? Yeah, it's really it's really bizarre. But so just to get into a little bit of the the clues that Christie lays in for this ultimate twist, which you know really was so shocking for readers. I think she was very careful to layer in as much support for it as she possibly could by the time she got there in the last ten pages of the book. We have a couple of very traditional kind of clues, such as. There's a reference to Dr. Shepard's weak character. His very perceptive spinster sister Caroline at one point says, you are weak, James, with a bad bringing up. Heaven knows what mischief you might have got into by now. And that's even fairly early on. So we're already being told to not necessarily trust Dr. Shepard. There's also this, uh, the first time Dr. Shepard speaks with Poirot over the garden hedge, so to speak, mm-hmm. since they actually are neighbors, Dr. Shepard talks about having come into a legacy Um, some money and then having gambled it all away in a gold mine in Australia. And it's very casually mentioned and never followed up, which is always a, an alarm bell for anything in a Christie novel early on. Go ahead. Well, no. And you know, anytime anybody comes into a legacy, right. You, and, or if it's squandered, you should should immediately be like, Oh, money. Yeah. And we, and we know that someone had been blackmailing this woman, Mrs. Ferrers in the beginning. So someone being in need of cash in some way, as the doctor was, is potentially suspicious. And then we get to what I think is actually the most clever working of, of the writing, because I actually thought that Christy hadn't pulled it off when I got to the end of the story and I had to go back to make sure she had. There's a key moment in the book which is when Dr. Shepard receives a phone call the night of the murder. And when I first read it, not as an astute reader, even knowing the twist, I mean, I did remember the twist, obviously. I'm rereading Roger Ackroyd. I assumed that we had been told by Dr. Shepard what the phone call said. 
like what, like what he had heard on the other line. And I, and I thought to myself, that goes against what Christie said. He's actually giving us misinformation. He's fabricating something. And then when I actually went, went back and read it very carefully, I was impressed by how cleverly she, she words this. And it's just worth excerpting, I think, from the book. Mm-hmm. So Dr. Shepard writes, I had just reached the top when the telephone rang in the hall below. Mrs. Bates, said Caroline immediately. I'm afraid so, I said ruefully. Mrs. Bates was just one another of his cases. I ran down the stairs and took up the receiver. What? I said. What? Certainly. I'll come at once. I ran upstairs, caught my bag, and stuffed a few extra dressings into it. Parker telephoning, I shouted to Caroline, from Fernley. They've just found Roger Ackroyd murdered. And of course, what's so clever here is that he never, he's, we he only never hear what Caroline actually, is told. Exactly. We only hear what Caroline's told. We only hear what he says. And we never hear what was actually spoken on the other line. We only hear what he tells people was spoken on the other other line. I defy even an astute reader to have any sort of alarm bells or alerts go off from that passage. And that's really, there are actually a bunch of these, what, what, what I will call hearsay clues, where Christy kind of layers in a bunch of instances where she's constantly reminding the reader that anything anyone says that they saw or they heard isn't necessarily true. Like midway through the book, Poirot himself cautioned Shepard and saying, so I give you then a little lecture. The first thing is to get clear history of what happened that evening. Always bearing in mind that the person who speaks may be lying. That's a hint. Right. Then he gets even more specific and says, um, this Dr. Shepard is speaking, I raise my eyebrows, rather a suspicious attitude, and now this is Poirot, but necessary, I assure you, necessary. Now first, Dr. Shepard leaves the house at 10 minutes to 9. How do I know that? This is Shepard, because I told you so. Then Poirot says, but you might not be speaking the truth. And he's putting the reader on, the, on their guard here. Don't necessarily believe what people say, including Dr. Shepard. But again, it's I, I defy even an astute reader at that point to really know exactly what he's talking about. It's only upon a rereading, once you know the twist, that you can see those devious little clues layered into this. But they are absolutely there. Yeah, just because you heard or saw something doesn't make it so. And I mean, if we were talking about how this is very similar in a lot of ways to Styles. And those are the linchpin clues in Styles. You know, it's the hearing of an argument uh, that Mrs. Inglethorpe was having. You know, it's the costumed character who it's, you know, unclear who it could be at the medical dispensary. Um, those are all, they're not even red herrings. They're misleading clues in the mysterious affair at Styles. It's not that people didn't actually see those or hear those things. It's that without appropriate context, you actually can't be an accurate judge as to what happened. I think there's also a really good clue woven into the story pretty early on in that Dr. Shepard only actually tells the inspectors who are investigating the case about the blackmail letter that Roger Ackroyd received when they go to him saying, hey, Parker, the butler, told us that he heard something about blackmail mm-hmm. when, you know, between you and Roger Ackroyd in the office. What's that all about? And there's this really awkward passage where Shepard is essentially saying, oh, right, right, right. I'm so glad you brought that up because I was totally going to tell you in like two seconds <laughs> and now I'm going to tell you everything. I'm going to tell you absolutely everything. And it's this textbook lady doth protest too much moment where it's like, hmm, maybe you weren't actually going to tell them that. And I think you actually might not be telling them everything right now. And again, I never would have deduced that before I knew the twist, but but 
looking back on it at the second time, I, it's it's totally there. It, he's he does not seem trustworthy in that moment. So there's just like all of these little moments that are both about the nature of whether or not people can be believed as to what they say, and also about whether or not Dr. Shepard himself is actually trustworthy. And they they kind of build and build and build until the climax of the story. Right. I think the other thing that happens, too, is that we almost have two sets of clues. We have those first clues that we just went through, which are a bit more vague and innocuous seeming and easily passed over. And then as the story ramps up toward this climax of the reveal of the big twist, we get a couple of clues that are a little bit more obvious and that I think are kind of paving the way toward toward that reveal. Um, one is that Poirot, we start getting the sense that Poirot is keeping Dr. Shepard very close and watching him very carefully. There's this moment where Flora Ackroyd finally tells everyone that she actually didn't speak with her uncle the night he was murdered. She was, in fact, lying, and that was a enormous complication to the story because it very much affected the timing of when he was, was murdered. So it's a really big deal that she was lying about it. It, it, it screws up everything in terms of alibis right. and all sorts of stuff. And Poirot says... I was watching your face and you were not like Inspector Raglan, startled and incredulous. And of course, we realized by the end, the reason for that is because he knew that Flora never talked to her uncle because he knew he was dead because he killed him. (laughs) But the net is closing in. And then we get this really interesting sequence where Poirot finding out that Dr. Shepard has been writing a manuscript of, of this tale, Poirot actually asks to read the manuscript. And that is quite unusual. I don't think he ever showed much of an interest in poor Captain Hastings's <laughs> scribbles. I mean, he would have just thought that Captain Hastings was inserting too many of his own theories. Yeah, I mean, well, he has this great, um, you know, after he reads it, Poirot says to Dr. Shepard, I congratulate you on your modesty and on your reticence. And he continues, not so did Hastings write. On every page, many, many times was the word I, what he thought, what he did, but you, you have kept your personality in the background. And I think a reader, an unaware reader, may think that Poirot is merely putting down poor Hastings yet again. And that's why this is such a great moment, because it's both humorous, but also quite significant and poignant in terms of the mystery, because what Poirot is really saying here in a bit of veiled language is that Dr. Shepard has something to hide. He's not He's not telling everything, and he's almost putting Dr. Shepard on his guard right, but it's, in this it's, moment. It's not only that, which is interesting, it's that, you know, it's a little bit, I mean, it's backhanded, certainly, but it's a little bit of affection to Hastings, because part of the reason why... Um, Hastings is a very good source for Poirot, and we see it even in short stories where he's not necessarily there to get all the information, etc., is that he knows Hastings so well that all of the insertion of Hastings into the narrative actually gives Poirot insight into what is actually there because Hastings sees and recounts everything. He just doesn't see it in exactly the accurate way. But having that sort of insertion of character into it is actually enough a lot of times for Poirot to see what's actually there. Right. Well, it's like Hastings. I mean, this is this is the most backhanded compliment I think you can make. But Hastings is the perfect, reliable narrator and impartial observer because he's not crafty enough to be. 
unreliable. Right. I mean, he says what's there, and he's very accurate, and he doesn't even muddy it by drawing any conclusions. Well, he, dra- he, he draws, draws his correct conclusions. Yes. <laughs> but it's so obvious, but they're so obviously wrong that they're immediately discounted by both the reader and Poirot. So he's essentially just a fact gatherer. And here we kind of have the exact opposite. We have someone who is not, who has an agenda, who's not, not just gathering facts, who's leaving a lot of stuff out and, you know, is the definition of unreliable. And the final clue before the twist, the most obvious and the one that really does, I think, put, would put most readers on guard is certainly put me on guard this time that it was coming, um, which is that there's this whole, throughout most of the book, Ralph, Patton, the stepson, who most people think actually did the murder because he's the one who's going to inherit uh, Roger Ackroyd's estate, he's missing. He's just totally gone. No one has any idea where he is. And we actually found out at the end of uh, 10 minutes before this reveal that Dr. Shepard is the one who's been hiding him away in a mental hospital for supposedly for his own protection. So that is a huge omission that Dr. Shepard has, you know, made in this tale. And Poirot says to him, you see now why I drew attention to the reticence of your manuscript. It was strictly truthful as far as it went, but it, it did not go very far, eh, my friend? And that is, you know, a clear signal that Dr. Shepard perhaps is concealing even more. It's really putting Dr. Shepard on his guard at that point. Poirot is basically baiting him in this moment and goes on immediately after to say, the murderer is in this room. Reveal yourself because you're going to get caught. And I know who you are. Kind of rather bravely corners Dr. Shepard by telling him to hang back and just stay in the room alone with him. Right. which I certainly would not have done. But, you know, there's no trap. There's no Inspector Jap or anyone else, like, waiting outside. And he successfully convinces... Not in this version, at least. Not, yeah, not in this version. We'll get to that in a second. And, you know, he successfully convinces Dr. Shepard to take matters into his own hands. This is another very much extrajudicial right. reckoning mm-hmm. for Poirot. And he tells him to kill himself because uh, mainly, well, but, probably solely because of his sister. It's, you know, Caroline, the gossip would be just ruined by the whole town knowing that her brother was not only a blackmailer, but a murderer. So his death will be upsetting, but it won't, it won't destroy her the way that his trial would. Right. Which is a little bit, I mean, I guess that's considerate of, um, Poirot. It's not really considerate to Roger Ackroyd. (laughs) Yeah, not not so much. And especially because it appeared that Poirot had some sort of pre-existing, like, friendship with Roger Ackroyd. You would somewhat think that perhaps he would want more justice done, but... But it's kind of like, I would argue that it's, it's, I was thinking about this and I think that notion of justice and restoring social order, it's really the emphasis is on restoring social order and who are you restoring social order for? The living. Right. You're not, you're not really doing it. Like there's kind of two different ways of looking at the reckoning. The reckoning is either vengeance for the person who's been killed, whose life has been taken away, or it's sort of, you know, the reestablishment of order for the people who still have to live in the world. And I think that the the mystery novel as constructed by Christie certainly leans much more heavily to the latter because it, the emphasis always does seem to be on how the people who are still living are going to be affected by it. I'm sure we can argue that and, and will come to argue that in other novels, but it certainly seems to be the case here. No, I, I definitely think that that is 
true. We should probably also talk about how Poirot actually does solve the mystery because it's relatively simple, right? The, we go back to the dictaphone. Mm-hmm. Ackroyd, it was to his secretary, right? The recording. And Dr. Shepard just sets set on playback mode and like <laughs> adjusts all the timing thusly. Yeah, I mean, it all it all boils down to technology. He had a dictaphone and he was able to put an alarm clock timer on it so that it seemed like Roger Ackroyd was talking after he was dead and that just confused the timing of the murder with all these other intrigues swirling around to the point where it was just not very obvious to anyone other than Poirot that Dr. Shepard had killed Ackroyd while he was still in his office. And in fact, that if it, if it doesn't make sense, and it's in fact really misleading early on, like why Shepard would manufacture a phone call so that he was so early on the scene, well, it's because he has mm-hmm. to you know, move the dictaphone. <laughs> totally. And I will, and, and I will say the, the final point on how Poirot solves the murder is that there's a key element where there's a chair, a grandfather chair that, that Dr. Shepard moves out of place because when he and the Butler Parker come into the room and come upon the body, if the chair hadn't been moved, Parker would have been able to see the dictaphone. And that would have been very strange. So Shepard needed to get into the room, then send Parker away to call the police. And then he was able to put the dictaphone in his medical bag. But Parker, being a trusty butler, noted in that two seconds that the chair was out of place and told Poirot about it. And then so Poirot never let go of this little detail. Why was the chair out of place when they came into the room? And then who moved it back? Right. Of course, Shepard moved it back after he put the dictaphone away. So again, never underestimate <laughs> the help. That ends up, I mean, it's kind of, it's, 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 you could argue it's a little bit like the linchpin of figuring out how he did it because there's so many other it's one among many of confusing clues but it turns out to be the one that's actually relevant (laughs) well not only that but um again let's return to styles it's it's poirot's fussiness right that of course he would pay special attention to something being out of place you know to a chair being out of place to the chair being out of place it's the uh mantle ornaments in the mysterious yep. style spills yeah the spills. the spills you know it's like a nice little character quirk <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about the adaptation i did not love this adaptation we tend to love the david suchet itv adaptations but yeah. uh this was this was the first episode of only two episodes in series slash season seven the uk air date was january 2nd 2000 so this is one of the later episodes which has a bit more somber of a tone to it um, well, can I note two things really quickly? Sure, sure, go for it. Um, it was the first episode to air in years. There was a significant gap yeah. between Series 6 yeah. and Series 7. I think it was something like four years. I guess you could say that this is a sort of demarcation between the early kind of more charming Poirots and then when all of them really developed this more somber tone. It's the first of them. So that's thing number one. They're coming back in from like a long hiatus. Yeah, and And they're dealing with... You could argue, though, that the somber tone is appropriate because now they're dealing more with more of the novels than the short stories. Mm -hmm. And the novels... The novels don't have the room to expand and be you know, get that sort of jaunty tone that they created themselves. And they're just more somber. They tend to be more somber than the short stories. Absolutely. And then thing number two is this was always going to be a thankless job to adapt this. It just inherently 
doesn't adapt well. Because again, as we it's said, unadaptable. Yeah, I mean, I suppose if you f- really foregrounded Dr. Shepard, you could theoretically do a better job with it, but by virtue of the fact that he seems as much a random suspect in it as all of the other random suspects in it, it's just really doing a disservice. Because as we said, you know, the actual plot of the mystery itself isn't necessarily all that interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's barring an extreme first-person point of view camera, like, which there are actually... I could be making this up. I think it's there's this noir movie, The Lady in the Lake, in the late 40s. I think it's this movie that is the camera is literally it's it's like a first person shooter video game. That's that's the way that it's filmed. Like when he looks in the mirror, the camera it's it's like you expect to see a camera, but you're actually seeing his face. They somehow managed to to work that. But it's just really hard and it's and it's goofy. It's a goofy effect in the movie. It doesn't work. It's just really hard to fabricate first person perspective. Well, I mean, on film, it's not it's not just that. It's that Barrow is secondary in the novel itself, right? I mean, Dr. Shepard is really the main character because he's narrating it. Um, And, you know, given that this was important in the comeback, and I think that this was when it started airing on A&E in the U.S., I might be wrong about that, but I think that that's how it aired stateside. You know, they had Mm -hmm. to really bring back Suchet, and, you know, they add, they add Inspector Jap when he's not in the story. And so the only way that I think possibly you could have adapted it was to really make the main character of it Dr. Shepard and have Poirot as a background character, and obviously they couldn't do that. Yeah, they couldn't do that, but even, I mean, even if the... Even if they did treat Poirot as a background character, just the the shock of the twist that the the person that's been telling you the story is the culprit just doesn't play because well, they're. I mean, Fight, fight, by, fight by, Club would argue it, with fans of Fight Club might argue with you. You know, but that's not the twist of, of Fight Club. The twist of Fight Club is that what we thought was two people is one person. That's that's well, the real who's, twist. Well, who's it's committing? Not. Who's committing all of the actions? Right, I suppose. Speaking of spoiler alerts, <laughs> <Whoops>. um, <laughs> sorry, that is that is not necessarily something everyone listening to this podcast will watch. <laughs> but sorry, <laughs> a nearly twenty year old movie. I'm really really sorry. Yeah, about those that. have an expiration date. I won't. I won't spoil. I won't spoil who is Kaiser Soze. <laughs> Which I had, did have spoiled before I watched oh, The no. Suspects, I may add. Yeah, so it was just ruined. Um, but it it's different. It's not that it's... That's, I would argue that's not the same thing. It's just not a twist that's ever going to work no matter what you do. I would I, I would almost argue that I know they wanted to adapt every single Poirot story, but if you were going to leave out one, this would be the one to leave out. Because I just don't... There's, there's almost no point. And they do a fine job with it, but it's basically the conventional mystery puzzle brought to life with some frills and additions like Jap and whatnot. And there are some different, there are many differences between the way the this ch- mystery the, the puzzle chase, works on screen. The chase scene at the end was an interesting adaptation choice. They definitely, they definitely amped up the action as they did sometimes with the short stories, I think to better effect, but it's fine. It's not particularly interesting and it just doesn't, well, it doesn't capture what makes this novel special. No, the best thing about the adaptation is that Suchet is so good in it and there is this real sense especially because 
um, he gets the narration. And, and there is a real sense yes. of world weariness that um, I think really marks all of the later adaptations. And Absolutely. Which makes sense. And it actually does make sense in the context of the book that Faro, you know, is in retirement. He doesn't really want to deal with this anymore, at least so he says. And that point is really, you know, driven home in the adaptation. It's the best thing the adaptation, I think, does. Not just a twist here, but I think it's the idea that really hasn't applied in the other books um, about unreliable narrators and taking something that is a comfort for the reader, which in this case was Captain Hastings, or even like Anne Bedingfield at some reason. We have no reason to ever, you know, not believe her in Man in the Brown Suit. It's to take a style that she had become very familiar with and that her readers would have become very familiar with and to, like, undercut it. And, I mean, I think that that, more than the twist, I mean, obviously the twist itself directly plays into that, but it's subverting her own coziness and her own sort of narrative reliability. That's actually the most shocking thing that she did here. And it's very effective. And it, by the way, it's something that people are still doing and, and copying to a certain extent with great success. I would argue that Gone Girl is a yeah. direct offspring of this twist. I mean, the Gone Girl twist of a series of diary entries actually being fabricated and being purposefully misleading mm-hmm. is you know, was very effective and shocked millions of readers just a couple of years ago because that's another genre that we're we're, we're not used to that being flipped on its head. We've certainly, there are tons of unreliable narrators of varying degrees throughout every genre of literature, but that idea, like you're saying, of taking a genre where we're not used to a grossly, horribly unreliable narrator and just tearing apart those conventions still works. You know, if it's done well, and it, and it was done well in Gone Girl, and it was certainly done well in The Murder of Roger Ackroyd almost 100 years earlier. So. Right. Whether or not it's successful may depend on how cynical the reader is. You know, Gone Girl for me didn't work, probably because I was so familiar with Murder of Roger Ackroyd, you know? If you were the reader... <laughs> but honestly, if you're the reader who has said who's been trained enough to be suspicious of that, you're going to look for it. Mm-hmm. And... You know, so, you know, I mentioned you earlier. Well, that's why it was so successful among crossover, as a crossover. I mean, I think a lot of people who, a lot of the, the, the tens of millions of people that brought, bought Gone Girl we're, we're not, not mystery novel readers. We're not, we're not seasoned mystery readers such as Catherine Brobeck. <laughs> it seemed far more clever to people who aren't familiar with these kinds of devices. And, you know, I said to you earlier that I was slightly disappointed reading this, not because I don't think it's worthy of being a classic, but if you know from the beginning what you're looking for, even if you don't see sleights of hand until you necessarily go back and look for them, you are looking for them. And because the mystery sure. puzzle itself is not particularly interesting, I don't mm-hmm. know that I really had any investment in Roger Ackroyd himself. It's a difficult it's a difficult book to reread. Yeah, sure. and so it's not it's and it's not meant it's not meant to be reread. That's the danger of a one trick pony. I mean if you get of and and I would argue I, I think Roger Ackroyd is, is a little better than a one trick pony, yeah, it but is. it's certainly the single trick is the thing that is elevating it above what it otherwise would be. 
right. Not that it wouldn't be, not that like Styles was a perfectly enjoyable murder mystery. I mean, this mm-hmm. would be probably like, you know, a perfectly enjoyable murder mystery, but the impact of it is a little bit lost once you start picking it apart from a place yeah. where you know how it ends. Well, that is a perfect segue into our ranking. Speaking of the one trick, I think that really goes to our first category of plot mechanics. I would 100% give this a 10 out of 10 for plot mechanics just because of, I think it's worthy of that just because of that trick. And I think all the other mechanics, again, like like you just said, are working on a mysterious affair at Styles level. And then this, this one trick, to me, just elevates the mechanics way high. I, if I could, I'd give it an 11. I would spinal tap it and give it an 11, but... Yeah, I think that that's fair. It's not, you know, all the all the pieces fit very nicely together, even as a yeah. basic puzzle mystery. They do Absolutely. mesh perfectly. Absolutely. So first 10 out of 10 for plot mechanics. <laughs> plot credibility, so the twist doesn't really have much to do with the credibility, other than do we believe the twist, and, and I think we do. I would argue, though, that even here, and that's why I don't think it's quite a one-trick pony, because I think even here the book is working somewhat better than Styles. I think there's more going on, yeah. which some readers might find annoying, because there's so many side plots and so much intrigue and so many clues and so many suspects, but this is a big old mystery puzzle with lots of moving pieces, and generally, these people do act as humans. We don't have any ridiculous solves like we did in Dials with the spills and not putting things in your pocket and stuff like that. I mean, there's a lot going on, but I never at any point said to myself, oh, I, I like this feels fake to me. And so I, that's what I would give it. I mean, I would give it an eight. I know that we gave Murder on the Links a seven. I think that it's also functioning at a higher level than Murder on the Links. Okay, so series-long characters. Obviously, we just have Poirot. How do you feel about Mr. Poirot? Well, my great love. Are we just talking in general? <laughs> um, specifically, specific uh, to this book. Um, well, it's it's harder because he is marginalized a bit here. But I like that he has like his little vegetable garden, um, you know, growing vegetable mm-hmm. marrows. And like I like his little cottage in this town. And, you know, I like that he misses Hastings clearly. Like I like the little details of it quite a bit. Yeah, I love I love all of his wistful mentions of Hastings. He's clearly really missing him. And I also like that there is this this little interlude, one of the side plots is the love affair between Flora Ackroyd and Major Blunt. And Poirot once again becomes the Belgian Yenta and goes hard at Major Blunt and says, You have to speak to her, you have to speak your mind, and he's all about love. And that's consistent. I mean, he is he's analytical and he talks about his little gray cells, but then he has this other side to him that's just very attuned to emotion and romance. So it's true. I, and I, I like and that. I really like actually all of his sort of suspicions of Dr. Shepard. I like how sharp he kind of is. We see him being rather sly in his methods, and I appreciate that. Yeah, he's I mean he's often compared to a cat. You know, mm-hmm. Hastings yeah. says his eyes get green like a cat's, and he's he is really like a cat here. It's the cat and mouse thing, and he is playing with Doctor Shepard. Oh, and, and it's, that is very enjoyable. It. It's very very enjoyable. I mean, I would give this either a six or a seven. I think that it's think we he, gave Poirot a, a, a very high score in styles because it was the first time we gave him a six in links. I could do seven if it a little better. Well, I think it is better. I just don't think he is as much of a presence in it. So that's the only difference. Agreed. Agreed. I- I'm happy with the six. I mean, we also don't want to overblow. Right. Sure. <laughs> the, <laughs> sure. The 
rankings of this. So let's let's say six. I'm, I'm comfortable with that. So on book-specific characters, I'd go pretty high on this. I think that Dr. Shepard is a fantastic character. He jumps off the page in a very different way from the sparkling, you know, scintillating Anne Bedingfeld, but he certainly does jump off the page. But my favorite character is actually also Agatha Christie's favorite character, which is Caroline, his spinster sister. And um, we're going to be getting to our first Miss Marple in a little bit, but Christie actually did admit that Caroline Shepard was uh, sort of the precursor to Miss Marple. As she put it, an acidulated spinster full of curiosity, knowing everything, hearing everything, the complete detective service in the home. So um, she's just fantastically drawn. There are so many great moments with her. She adds, she peppers the book with humor and even some pathos. And we'll get to that in a second. So I, I thought she was great. You know, there were even some other characters. Mrs. Ackroyd, the sister-in-law, was my least favorite. She was rather hysterical. And I think we were supposed to find her funny, but I, I just never did. But like Flora Ackroyd is kind of the Mary Cavendish of this novel, but she was way more real seeming to me than Mary Cavendish ever was. Right. You know, Ursula, Ursula Bourne, the parlor maid, I think would have been much more of a pastiche caricature in an earlier Christie. I, I just feel like it's all working better yeah. than an earlier novel. Yeah, I am still partial to the secondary characters in Man in the Brown Suit more than I am here. Sure. But they're certainly better drawn than in the other two Poros we read, I mean, by far. Yeah, I agree with that. Seven or eight? What do you think? Uh, I, I would be slightly more inclined to a seven, but I can be, I can be swayed. We can do a seven, because I actually agree with you that I think the Man in the Brown Suit character is just had a little extra something little that, extra that these spark. characters, while they are better, uh, don't don't quite have. That's true. Uh, maybe it's just maybe it's just Rue McClanahan. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, or maybe it was, maybe they're all just more tan. <laughs> so setting and tone, you know, the setting is is about as blah as it often is in these in these yeah. mystery puzzles. I I don't think it's much better than Styles, but tone given that we have this brilliant use of first person, um, I think is, is certainly improved. That twist packs a punch at the end. It's actually fairly creepy a little bit. And there's also the final lines of the book when, in which Dr. Shepard is very coolly debating how he's going to commit suicide, I think are great. And, and it's just two lines. Here's what he, what he says. So let it be Veronal. But I wish Hercule Poirot had never retired from work and come here to grow vegetable marrows. <laughs> and that's the last line of the book. It's just so... Uh, morbid dark and morbid and i don't know just, well well done she doesn't her her final lines in her short stories I, I think often leave something to be desired but that's a that's a good ending this is a little bit like a short story final line though <laughs> yeah it is it is a good short yeah. story final line <laughs> yeah what do you think six yeah that sounds good to me and real quick because we don't have to spend much time on it because there's there there's not much of it but Stuck in its time, you know, compared to, I think, pretty much every other Agatha Christie we've read, this one does remarkably well, probably because the book is so much about these narrative twists and turns. There was only one moment that really jarred me, and it's basically when there's one character that's essentially talking about a a Scottish person being cheap, and... Dr. Shepard says, hardly that, I said dryly. They are usually Scotch gentlemen, but I suspect a Semitic strain in their ancestry. And, you know, it's one of her casual anti-Semitic jokes, or not even jokes, but pleasantries, (laughs) quote-unquote. 
which are just everywhere in these books. There are a couple of tiny other casually sexist moments, but then I would also argue that the portrayal of Caroline Shepard is actually somewhat poignant and that she's clearly a smart yet frustrated woman. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of little moments where she says, you know, she claims to have a better memory than her brother, which I totally believe is true. She says, never worry about what you say to a man. They're so conceited that they never believe you mean it if it's unflattering. She's just... I found that portrayal to actually be more modern than portrayals of many women in the book. So I'm inclined to say no deductions just because I think it does remarkably well. Barring the anti-Semitism. Yeah, I mean... I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that that anti-Semitic moment doesn't matter, but I just think normally there are multiple anti-Semitic moments. Yeah, not that it's funny, but there there just are and, and and other stuff. So if you if you're more comfortable with one, I think it could either it's deserving of perhaps one or zero. I can go either way. I guess we can go with zero. Yeah, I think let's just be kind, even though she wasn't necessarily kind to to all all the time. <laughs> So that brings our full ranking to 10 plus 8 plus 6 plus 7 plus 6 with no deductions, which is 37 points, which puts the murder of Roger Ackroyd in first place (laughs) by four points. Our current tally for those who are keeping track, which may just be me and Catherine, but that's fine, is the murder of Roger Ackroyd in first place, then the man in the brown suit, then the secret adversary, then murder on the links, followed by the mysterious affair at Styles, and in dead last, the secret of Chimneys. Well, on that note, next time we will be tackling yet another short story. It will be the million dollar bond robbery. Ooh la la. And I will also just note, we at some point are going to be doing a special episode. We did mention that there's this moment in the book when Dr. Shepard secretes Ralph Patton into a mental hospital. And that is something that is going to have some real life parallels for Dame Agatha Christie herself shortly after the publication of this book. Speaking of of Gone Girls. Yeah, speaking of Gone Girl also. So more to come on that. We're not exactly sure when that episode is going to come out, but just based on the chronology here, we're hoping sooner rather than later. And we'll leave it at that and be mysterious about it until that very special bonus episode. As usual, we appreciate any feedback. So uh, you can follow us on Twitter at all about the dame. You can follow us on Instagram at the same, and you can email us at gmail at all about the dame at gmail.com. And please, as always, if you should so desire, rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you are listening to this podcast. 